1: We're all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Before we really get into stuff, uh, we got to talk about something that we have not yet talked about on the show. I realize that's what we do every week, is talk about new stuff. (laughs) This is some, uh, you know... Behind the scenes kind of stuff, though, Uh, some of you know that we have uh, a Patreon uh, set up to help kind of people want to support the show. It's called the Society of Strange. Uh, Mm. You may have also noticed over the course of the last year, as the show has grown, we've started to have uh, more ads on the show. And those actually somewhat help at least a little bit we get very little money for them but they help um kind of offset some of the costs of of doing the show Mm -hmm. and as a new bonus that we have now uh for all of our patrons some of them already know this because they've seen the announcement over on patreon but they are now getting all of our episodes ad free awesome So if you don't like the ads, uh, which, hey, I get it. Uh, And if you want to support the show and get ad-free episodes, we're actually offering ad-free episodes to every level of support uh, over on Patreon. So we have three different levels of support, and you will get ad-free episodes with every single level, uh, starting with, uh, I think, just the $5 uh, level and going up from there. So we do hope, you know, you will, uh, you know, th- think about becoming a patron and support the show. It really does help us continue to do what we do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not going to belabor the point anymore, but go over to patreon.com slash strange by nature. Check out what the Society of Strange is all about. And I think, uh, you know, we're going to jump right into it this week. And uh, Rachel, you going to uh, take things off for us here?
2: Boy, howdy, am I.
1: Oh, good. (laughs) Excellent. I'm so excited.
2: All right. So some of the, I would say, more memorable moments of the podcast Mm -hmm. are when we cover parasites. Parasites, of course. Oh, you know,
1: uh, yeah, I I do love a good parasite episode once in a while.
2: We all do love that. They just... I would say they give, but they don't. They just keep taking and taking and taking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true.
2: It's funny. Yeah. They're not much of a giver, are they? No, they're, they're really... Well, they're a giver for us. I wish, there was, case, I wish the there was a word. I wish there was a word for
1: that, for something that only takes.
2: Are we... Mm, mm. Are Wait, mm. hold on.
1: Are we Are we a, are parasite, a parasite on, on parasites? On on parasites?
2: Because they give to us.
1: Mmm. Ooh. We're, We're going to have to think about that. It's kind of bit. metaphysical
2: now. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. We're, we'll ha- we'll put a pin on that. So there, okay. there are so many different kinds of parasites, and I know. Did you
0: uh, did you put it in formaldehyde before you put a pin in it? Hmm.
1: Mm. Maybe <laughs> sorry, desic- it's
2: sorry. A That's really like... good. That was good. <laughs> what a nerdy joke! So nerdy. I love it.
1: <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria's talking nerdy to everybody. Oh
2: yeah. <laughs> so, sorry for interrupting you, Rachel. You're Go fine.
1: on. No, you're not.
2: No. <laughs> uh, so we obviously we're gonna cover more parasites in the future, but one that we haven't talked about at least in a while has been parasites not. Let me rephrase parasites. That aren't parasitic to humans. So we haven't gone outside of that for a little bit.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough.
2: So let's dive in. We're going to go into a brain space for us. We're going to, I'm going to turn you all into ant, but first we're going to fly over to either the British Isles or France, whichever one we want. And we're going to shrink down. Delightful. Uh-huh. And yeah. with a little magic, we're gonna turn into red ants. Not any ants. not just any red ants. We're going to shrink down and become and join a red ant colony of myrmica sabuleti. Okay.
1: Sabuletti.
2: Sabuleti. Not quite cool fabulosa,
1: but we'll go for it. I
2: know. We'll we'll go with it. Um a- in this gorgeous pasture. All right. It's a little chilly, but we're fine. We're going out. As a trio of ants, (laughs) so specific, there's a reason we go out and we're collecting some time uh, to bring back and to help feed the colony, help feed the little baby larvae that we have back at the nest. Unfortunately, our queen has just passed away, so we're waiting for the new queen to Hmm. like emerge or show up
1: for the coronation ceremony and the state
2: funeral I and all that. I yeah. didn't right.
0: know that ants ate thyme. Does it make them like more fragrant?
2: Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Fascinating. This is not about that. We're going to continue on as our <laughs> ants I'm like,
1: that's not where this is going. <laughs> no, okay. it is
2: not. We actually while we're out collecting this thyme, we smell something. Ooh, we get a little taste of time. this honeydew it's not time and it smells just like a queen oh like ooh. a queen ant great and we've been looking for one and we've been nurturing we some, have indeed but we don't know where this queen came from and why she's out in the pasture by herself
1: yeah can we trust can we trust her though that seems kind of sketch
2: but it smells yeah, just like the queen that. so we have to return okay. her back to the nest we get a couple of. Oh, like maybe she wandered off. Right. Smell is destiny. Exactly. So we have to bring her back. So we bring her back. Gotcha. With our other fellow uh, Myrmica sabuleti ants. And we bundle her up and we gather her in our colony in the nest. Okay. She's uh-huh. kind of near where the larvae are because she does need to be fed and everything. We need to be able to cater to her every whim. As ants,
1: got such a bad feeling about this. There's like one. I have ant the feeling going,
2: this is not. Something seems off. Yeah. Actually, a queen. This is not this a just a feeling. <laughs> mm. Yeah. As time goes on, the queen just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Her appetite grows to the point where it's actually hard to ca- keep up with the other ant larvae in the colony. To the point where some of our this is like having a aunts. teenager at home. Oh yeah, I, I've heard some of the other ants are actually feeding her the larvae before they become workers. Because oh, because oh, she's seems taking like a... so much hmm. from us to feed to like just keep up and keep happy. But.
1: And no one's like, hey, you notice the queen's eating all the babies. Like that just seems uh, well. No, anyone weird? No, she smells good. No, I guess. let's keep doing. And it.
2: Not only does she smell good, I mean, obviously it's the queen. It smells like the queen. It even sounds like a queen ant. So there's some auditory.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just picturing the Bohemian Rhapsody now. Okay.
2: How's uh, how's the
0: eyesight of these ants? They kind of bad okay. eyesight.
2: Uh, it, not not. I didn't see anything about creatures. that. Not super visual. No, they go more for mm-hmm. pretty dark underground. It, it, <laughs> it is
1: famously dark underground. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, because it smells and sounds like the queen, it has to be the queen, right?
0: right. No. So <laughs> I mean, no.
2: <laughs> right, especially how I started this, right? Months go by, yeah, yeah, and the colony becomes weaker as less larvae yeah. emerge or survive. The Aww. queen yeah. wraps herself up for some reason in this silk, and she hibernates for Ooh. six weeks in June. Wild time to hibernate. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And then she emerges. What could be going yeah. on? I don't know. And then she emerges and crawls oh. out of the nest in the ground and abandons uh-huh. us for nothing. Oh. No. Absolutely wild, I right? monarchy was
1: a mistake. Ugh.
2: She abdicated. She straight up abandoned us. The the three of us who were left, everyone else is probably dead.
1: <laughs> everyone but us is dead. Yes, yeah. that makes sense.
2: So any guesses to what creature could be preying on this ant colony? Mm. A wasp.
1: Mm. Hmm. Wasp is such a a safe bet because like there's just so many wasps, right? Yeah. Um. Weirdly, uh, but a cocoon. You said a cocoon.
2: I said a silk wrapping. Silk.
1: Oh, like silk. You said silk. So like that is weird. Well, it Um, seems
0: likely that it's some kind of insect that just went through metamorphosis, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So I guess if it's silk, it it could be like.
0: Some kind of uh, moth.
1: Mm, yeah, like moth. Moth is what I was thinking, but I was like, that seems crazy. Is it a moth? You're like a
2: caterpillar moth situation? Very close. So close. This is a, <sighs> is a particular species of butterfly. No way. Oh, parasitic yes. butterfly. It is a parasitic, a parasitic butterfly. butterfly. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's awesome. Almost as
2: good as a vampire butterfly. Right? So, in particular, yeah, we talked about that. Oh, we did. This is the large blue butterfly, which
1: what a creative name!
2: mm, (laughs) It's which is very funny because its wingspan is about two inches in total. So it's not a huge (sighs) butterfly.
1: Terrible, yeah, terrible name.
2: But it has silvery. It's silvery with blue wings. And a series of black dots upon the forewings, wings, which is how you really identify the adults. The okay. caterpillars yep. don't look really anything special. They're kind of like a creamy white brown.
1: They don't. They don't look like ants. They
2: don't look like ants. Uh, okay. But this particular type of parasitism is called ant tending, where you get ants oh, to tend to you, cute. right? To like take mm-hmm. care of you. It's um yeah. really co- it's actually pretty common with several different species of butterflies but this particular one right but this particular species caught my eye partially because of the queen mimicry there is several different ways that this butterfly actually infiltrates the nest uh one of uh, one strategy that they have is the cuckoo method which is very well similar which is what I mostly described to you
0: yeah totally reminded me of like cuckoos and cowbirds
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Breed mm-hmm. parasites, right? Exactly. There is also a method or a strategy that they use called uh, a predator strategy where that once they get in, they'll still sound like the queen and everything, or they'll sound like a worker ant and just gorge themselves as a caterpillar gorge themselves until they get to the right weight and size on ant larva. Mm-hmm. But that can also be dangerous. It doesn't seem to be as effective as the cuckoo method, which is fascinating. Interesting. Um, but what's really cool, too, are not only are they preying on this one specific species, for the most part, they only, they'll go for other ant species, other red ant species. Okay. But mm-hmm. only if the uh, the Myrmica sabuleti species is not there. And don't there, doesn't so exist like in that particular range that they're in because they're okay. found, they've been reintroduced into the British Isles, but they're found from France all the way through Eurasia into like China and such. So there's a couple oh, of wow. yeah. So there's a couple of other species, but for the most part, they heavily rely on the Myrmica sabuleti species of red ants. Interesting, ant, right? So while they're preying on these ants, they They only start preying on the ants and spreading the pheromones and such after their fourth instar. So they start off eating like seeds of various little plants, including thyme plants. And once they are after their fourth instar, they'll drop to the ground and look for foraging colony or like foraging Maruca sabuleti ants. Because other ants actually will kill and eat them if they're found within their nest. (laughs) As they should. As they should, right? So, but they are specially developed to, they've evolved into being so particular about what species of ant they go to. Now, not only all of that, but the large blue butterfly is actually crucial to the habitat around them. So, if there's a healthy population of the large blue butterfly, it's actually been shown that other species benefit from the habitat that the large blue butterfly is in because it requires Mm -hmm. more diversity. So, if you have a good amount of large blue butterfly, odds are the rest of your habitat, your pasture lands and such, are going to have pasque flowers, rare orchids, um, even rugged oil beetles are often found so in the same spot.
1: They're basically, they're, they're an indicator species.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Cool. It's really, really wild, really cool. Thank you for coming on this journey with me and becoming ants. Sorry that Thank we us. killed the <laughs> ant colony. The whole
1: colony. <laughs> but, oh, <yeah. laughs>
2: you know, that, that's kind of how it works sometimes. Uh, my sources. So we and the yeah. listeners survived. So. Oh, we did. Congrats. My sources is most week? of them. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, we're an article from the Guardian by Patrick uh, Barkham. Uh, Wikipedia and the Butter Butterfly Conservation Society had excellent resources. That's cool. what I got
1: this week. Well, cool, Thanks. That was wild.
2: Yeah. Hmm. We're gonna take a quick break, and when we return, it'll be Victoria.
0: What is it? Who does it? Why does it matter? The Science Night Podcast answers these questions by giving scientists a place to tell their story. We also highlight science news
1: and discoveries that will have you asking, My
0: God, what have I done? What weird thing are we going to talk about this week that involves a frog?
1: They made an organic robot? Like, Didn't they see The Matrix?
0: Join us every other Friday, wherever you get podcasts, and at Cyanite.com. And we're back. All right, my turn. So... My husband is a huge tennis fan, which means that I get to stay somewhat up to date on what's happening in the tennis world, whether I want to or not. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I get that feeling. Yeah. Um, In particular, he's a really big Rafael Nadal fan. And Nadal actually uh, had been, he's, for, for those who are not aware, he's like one of the top three tennis players in the world, basically. Um, Nadal had been taking a break from professional tennis for almost a year due to some injuries, but he recently played a comeback match in Australia, uh, leading up to the Australian open, which is played in the second half of January. So, um, Rafa actually, in in case you were wondering, Rafa actually won his comeback match against, uh, other player Dominic team without too much trouble, but it is possible that uh, team was hampered by relieving a traumatic memory, though.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Four days earlier, team's match against a different player was suspended for 40 minutes due to a snake intrusion onto the tennis court. <laughs> 40 minutes? Uh, for 40 a minutes. Snake? Okay. It was. <laughs> was it uh, a. Well, cobra? they had to call a professional snake catcher to come okay. get the snake because um i don't know if you knew this guys but there are a lot of venomous snakes
2: in australia oh, you know i yeah, heard no, about I totally that. didn't clock
1: for a minute that they were in australia yeah so that would yeah yeah
2: that makes a little yeah. more sense that's fair okay
1: fine i
2: guess <laughs> so fair. still 40 yes. minutes is a lot you're australian well they fine. had to
0: locate and bring in a a professional snake catcher? I mean, there may have been traffic. I don't that's know. They don't pretty, probably they good, don't keep one in the, in the arena just in case. Uh,
1: excuse me. They will there's a professional now. snake catcher in the stands, please come on down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this snake turned out to be an eastern brown snake, which, it so happens, has the second deadliest venom of any land snake in the world, <laughs> and... Good love that. The third deadliest venom overall <laughs> cuz there's a sne- sea snake in there.
1: So probably good that they paused the match?
0: Yeah. I would. Say. Although, yeah, let me tell go. you, I watched I watched the video of the snake catcher and like people were standing real close. Like this walked up and grabbed it. I mean, no, the snake catcher was keeping his distance. He had a kind of a pole, picker mm-hmm. upper thing see, and see, a that. bag, but like the other people around were not as far away as I think they needed to be. <laughs> when you
1: face death every day, uh, you get a little, yeah, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> anyway, this got me thinking get about tennis ball the venomous snakes of Australia, uh, which yeah, yeah, notoriously is home to quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, according to the Wikipedia page on venomous snakes, of the twelve most venomous snakes in the world, nine of them are found in Australia or Australian waters.
1: Outstanding Australia yeah. Australia way to go.
0: Yeah, and Truly of those five one are endemic above the rest. to Australia. Yeah. Um, so that that uh is measured by the lethality of the venom. Because there's Wild different snakes. ways okay. of measuring yeah. the dangerousness of snakes.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Um so the the most venomous snake in the world is the inland Taipan, also Australian, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. um, you know, gram for gram, deadliest venom in the world. Among snakes. Uh, okay. And in Australia, there are, in fact, about 200 species of snake total. Uh, that includes sea snakes, uh, of which about 100 are venomous, uh, depending oh. on what source you're looking at. Oh, it's man. pretty hard to nail this down. So that's okay. like 50%. Um, mm-hmm. Another source said 65% of the Australian snakes are venomous. And about what 25, 25 snakes are considered deadly. Um, At that point,
1: it's best just to assume they're all venomous. Yeah. Yeah. Give them a wide berth.
0: So just to give a a couple points of comparison here, uh, there are 129 species of snakes in North America, give or take, of which about 21 are venomous. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is like, so this is like, count. this is vipers and um, uh, um, the other kind, like coral snakes and stuff. Cause there's, mm. there's like garter snakes that have like really mild venom and that's not including yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff.
1: Like yeah. the hind fang venomous right, snakes. Right, 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 or...
0: right, right. Like the hog um, nose. Okay. yeah. But if we're talking about yeah. like seriously venomous, 21 North American okay. species. So that's 16%. And I'm okay. going to guess
1: that like almost all the North American species are all just slight variations on rattlesnakes.
0: Most of them, other than mm-hmm. the cottonmouth yeah. and the <laughs> copperhead and the coral snake. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then there's a whole bunch of different rattlesnakes. Um, and, uh, in India, which has the most snake bite deaths of any country, there are, you know, again, according to what source you're looking at, around 235 to 300 species of snakes. And again, depending on which source you're looking at, 13, Mm -hmm. 15, or 60 of them are venomous. (laughs) That is a (laughs) big jump. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So that more is at research is needed, not or something the there. Same. <laughs> but that is at most twenty-five percent of the snake species in India. Probably less. Right. Probably. Less.
1: What, what was the percentage again for Australia? Sixty something. Uh, or? Fifty to
0: sixty-five.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's, that's um, uh, considerably more.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and in India, about four species are four species responsible for about eighty percent of the snake bites. Um and worldwide only 10 to 15% of snake species are venomous. So it really is true wow. that Australia has a much bigger proportion of venomous snakes than other countries. What places. is In the world.
2: happening? Why?
0: Well, why? But and you know, Australia has this reputation, right? It's not just snakes. Australia is nice. sort of notoriously home to a lot of deadly animals from mm-hmm. you know, the blue-ringed octopus, the box jellyfish, the Sydney Tangilers. funnel web spider, koalas. Come on, uh, <laughs> the drop bears. Come on, yeah, they'll get you. You watch out. Ah, <laughs> saltwater crocodiles, bull mm-hmm. sharks living on golf courses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know. But yeah. as you said, why? Why? Yeah, why? why is Australia so deadly? It turns out that part of this is hype. I mean, okay. the sea creatures I mentioned are not exclusive to Australia by any means, and right. You know, it turns out that the proportion of venomous animals in Australia other than snakes is not particularly higher than for other tropical areas of the world. Okay. Okay. But, you know, Australia's kind of cultivated this reputation, I would say. I mean, I think I sort of first became aware of this when I read a book of Bill Bryson's. Mm. If you're familiar mm. with him at all, he's kind of like a yeah, co- yeah. comedic travel writer and Um, He was just going on and on and on about all the deadly animals in Australia. And I feel also like Steve Irwin. Like how brave I am for traveling. Maybe a little responsible for this. Rest in peace. We love you, Steve. Um, Yeah. But as for snakes, Australia does definitely have more than its fair share. And as far as scientists understand at this point, this kind of seems to be down to a founder effect. Hmm. So what I mean is um, that about 100 million years ago, Australia split off from the supercontinent, Gondwana.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And by about 60 million years ago, through plate tectonics, it had drifted over the South Pole, which killed all the native reptiles because it was
2: mm-hmm.
0: cold. <laughs> yeah. And Even back um, then. Yeah, even back then. Right. And after it drifted back to uh, warmer latitudes, it just so happened that the first snakes to colonize it were from a venomous snake fang- family, the Elapidae, mm. mm-hmm. which was the one I was trying to come up with earlier. Okay. Um, and, you know, I think some other spa- snake lineages did join, but it seems like the Elapidae got there first and kind of proliferated and evolved into the species we see today there. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean,
1: that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, so, like, cool, like, that makes sense, a bit of hype, but underlying all this is a story that isn't really talked about very much, which is that, in fact, very few people in Australia die from encounters with snakes or any other animal. Um, Because they stop their
1: tennis matches.
0: Right, right. Well, only one (laughs) to two people a year are are killed by snakes in Australia, which is impressive considering how venomous so many of them are. Um, In India... That number is more than 58,000 people a year. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah, it's horrible. That's a lot. It's awful. Yeah. And other, yeah. other areas of South and Southeast Asia and how? Sub-Saharan Africa also have very high incidence of snake snakebite.
1: Do you know much, how much th- that has to do with the number of bites versus the number of bites that people get treated for and like antivenoms and things like mm-hmm. that? Well, of it's, it's some yeah. of both.
0: It's some of both. About Australia that. has two big advantages. Um, first, it's very sparsely populated. And second, it's rich. So right. yeah. um, because it's sparsely populated, people are not all living where a lot of the snakes are. Mm-hmm. And because it's rich, uh, like most people in wealthy countries, most people are not working outdoors. And if they do get bitten, they are likely to be able to access high quality, life-saving medical care, including antivenom, but also, you know, respiratory and circulatory support and stuff india of course most of the opposite is true it's densely populated uh, significant portion of the population works outdoors in rural areas and most people are poor and unable to access high quality medical care quickly they do have um i mentioned those big four species in india like that are responsible for 80 percent of the snake bites they do have a quadrivalent snake antivenom um, that's available like so when when people are known to be bitten and like can get to a medical facility first, they're given that and it can help, but it's still a really major public health problem. Um, yeah. So Australia has more than its fair share of snakes, but, uh, it's not that big a deal. Really other areas of the world that are bearing the burden. All right. Well, I'll get there someday.
1: Yeah. Hopefully.
0: My sources this week were many, but uh, chiefly Discover Magazine, Live Science, uh, the helpful website of Dr. Martin C. Schmidt of the University of Pittsburgh, who had a list of snakes of North America, uh, the Australian Museum, and New South Wales Environment and Heritage. We are going to take a little break, and when we come back from a break, we will have Kirk.
2: Woo!
1: Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, I I want to talk about bird feathers. Shocking, I know. Who would have? But yeah. I'd want to talk about birds. But uh, nerd. I just think <laughs> nerd. Uh, yeah, I'm a bird nerd <laughs> totally. Uh, part of what I love about birds is how colorful they are, right? I think that's one of the really appealing things that people are like get drawn into, you know, observing birds and 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 counting birds and just having pictures of birds on things. Is they're they're colorful. Uh, sometimes gregarious, sometimes secretive, but these these colorful animals, and that the whole color thing, I think, is really fascinating. Totally. So yeah. generally, color in birds comes from two different places. It's actually, kind of two different sources for color in birds: uh, pigment, pigment color, like I think we would most be familiar with, and assume you know is out there, but then also structural color. And so, a couple examples here. I'll try to pick two birds that most people have heard of. The Northern cardinal, bright red bird, and uh, here in North America, the blue jay, we have, which is a bright blue and blue. white, large jay. So kind of opposite, uh, you know, uh, color birds there. But the cardinal, if you were to take some cardinal feathers, which are that bright red, at least on the male, those the mm-hmm. bright red male feathers, and put them into like a, a food grinder, like a coffee grinder, or like even a mortar and pestle, and somehow grind them into a powder that powder would be red because yeah. you'd have the the red pigment within the feathers. I don't care if you crush it up, it's still a red pigment, right? Right.
0: But interestingly... I'm, s- I'm so I interested know- to see where you're going with this, Kirk, because I wrote down a topic today that yeah. is kind of similar to maybe where you're going. Anyway, i I, well, I we'll go on. Well, we'll have to wait
2: and see. And I, I <laughs> do you know take- that we've covered... Bits and pieces of what I think you're going to cover, when I've talked about a fish, uh,
1: I, I I I think I think you're wrong. But anyway,s oh, okay. if you take um, if you take blue feathers like from a blue jay and you crush those up, uh, the resulting powder would be gray, yep, right. not blue, and that's because there is no blue pigment in blue feathers. Uh, that's a, a structural color, basically the shape of the feather itself, of the structure of the feather is reflecting the blue light rather than there being a pigment whose shape uh, reflects blue light. That may seem like kind of a subtle difference, but one is a pigment that is inside the feather whereas one is the actual structure of the feather itself. Yeah. Uh, and right. You know, this does make a di- does make a difference. I was uh out birding one time on vacation. I was uh, in San Francisco and I saw some little birds flitting around in a park and I'm like, oh cool, some birds and get the binoculars up. And I'm like, um okay, what it what is this bird? I mean it looks like my first you know impression the overall impression of this bird is that it was a um like a house finch. Mm-hmm. But it was not that kind of Purpley, grapey kind of color. It was orange. They were orange birds. Hmm. And I'm going. What? What are these like orange finches? Like I, I'd never seen orange finches before. And I, I looked it up, and I'm like, oh, they're they're house finches. That's a thing that can happen to house finches. Sometimes oh. they don't get enough of the right things in their diet hmm. to help them make the pigment. There's some. There's some speculation as when it comes to bird pigment that. Um, often it's females who are looking at the males and kind of judging them based on their their coloration and going, you know, this guy, look, he's really brightly colored. Uh, that must mean he is really good at securing high quality food sources. Whereas this guy looks kind of dingy. Maybe it means he's younger. He hasn't quite figured out yet, like how to be an effective bird. Maybe his genetics kind of suck. Right. Right. Obviously, they're not thinking all these things through consciously, <laughs> but you know, they are. There, there, there's the thought is that birds are drawn to brighter colored birds because it's going to increase the chance of their offspring being more successful because the brighter colored birds are more successful at finding um rich, good foods to eat. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, I came upon a story uh, recently that I guess it turns out there's something else that can also affect the color of bird pigment in their feathers, and it's not oh. uh, not what you might expect. So enter into my story evolutionary ecologist Andrea Romano and his colleagues. Uh, and what they were studying is a pretty cool animal, the barn owl. Now, barn owls are one of these owls that's found kind of around the world. They're found in many, many different places. And one of the cool things about that is is we can compare uh, barn owls from different parts of the world to kind of see how similar or how different they are. Mm-hmm. and naturally we find a lot of variation in the color of barn owls there's something that's been known uh, for a long time you look at them and go oh this one looks a little bit different than that one right mm-hmm. these researchers really cataloged where a lot of those different colors variants show up and when I say colors I'm some aren't red and some you know blue and some purple this is basically how dark they are like how dark or light color they are white or cream or light
0: brown basically yeah right. versus like
1: a darker brown yeah yeah um and what the researchers were able to show in general is that barn owls on islands are paler than mainland uh, land, more you know, mainland based populations. It's like, okay, interesting, but I'm going to quote uh, Andrea here. He said, however, such a difference uh, disappears on small and remote islands and archipelagos where in some cases, owls are darker than the continental ones. So it's like, Okay, so mainland owls tend to be darker. Then you go to islands, and they get lighter. But then when you go to like small, more remote islands, they get darker again. And this weird. sort of caught their mm. attention. It was like, this is weird, right? And I think a lot of great science starts with people going, "Huh, that's interesting, right?" I'm gonna look. I'm gonna look into that a bit more. And uh, it turns out, you know, well, they, I guess they wanted to know like, why were these smaller islands causing darker owls? And I got good news for you. The researchers now think they know at least part of the answer, and it's really weird. So, the key realization was that these small, remote islands tend to be volcanic in origin.
2: What?
1: Mm, interesting. Mm. Okay. You know what else is found in abundance on volcanic islands? Sulfur. Mm-hmm. Now, some oh. previous studies had shown that sulfur can affect the color of animals. So these researchers tested the feathers from locations around the world and discovered that, yes, indeed, birds from areas with like sulfur rich soils tend to be darker in coloration. Hmm. I, I, as interesting as that is, I do want to point out one thing, though. Uh, This isn't like a one to one correlation. They actually estimate that the sulfur is responsible for about 10 percent of the color difference that we see. Okay. And they think maybe about 70% of the difference is just genetics, right? Now, if you're even remotely good at math, uh, you'll have the same question I did, which is, um, okay, 70 plus 10 is 80. Right. So what accounts for the other 20% of the difference? Uh And I will tell you, gentle listener, I could find no answer to that question. Uh, Hmm. I think it may just have to do with like the margin of error on the confidence mm. in those numbers. Uh, but that's, I was like, huh, that okay. doesn't equal 100. That's real special. So it does look, though, that growing okay. up in a volcanic area can actually make bird feathers darker. This could be an advantage as far as like hiding and giving right, them better right. camouflage on an island. Uh, another really interesting hypothesis has to do with the fact that sulfur is not particularly healthy for, oh, I don't know, most living things. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a toxin. <laughs> So uh, these researchers had hypothesized that the birds, um, the reason their feathers are darker is that they're actually converting sulfur in their system into more like mel- uh, melanin, and mm-hmm. they're making these darker melanin pigments with that sulfur because that's one of the that's one thing you can do. You can convert convert sulfur into this melanin, uh, oh. and so it could be that they are darker because of essentially like a inherent detoxification process in their bodies and they're like we got to do something with this sulfur like i know we can we can make darker feathers and so they're we're literally seeing the results of them detoxifying their bodies by having darker feathers which is pretty awesome
2: that is really cool Uh, so
1: this (laughs) is a new area of study Uh, there's still lots of questions uh we don't For example, we don't really even know how the sulfur is getting into the birds in the first place. Yeah, because they're not eating. It could be through the air. Well, but I mean, it could be in the food that they eat, right? If they're eating, uh, if, if the sulfur gets into plants. In the, from the soil to the plants and plants are eaten by insects and insects are eaten by um you know rodents or something like that i don't know and then like they're eating those it, it's like could be part of just part of the food web so it's getting in from the right. food Accumulation so they don't really know things. exactly what the mechanism is yeah bioaccumulation so not, that's kind of a next phase of research is like well, okay, how does the uh the sulfur get in there but they did show that like the longer the more or guess the The better way to say it is the more recently volcanic activity had happened on the island, the higher the sulfur was going to be. And then the more likely it was for there to be darker colored birds. So, yeah, very cool. Uh, More science to be done, as we say. Uh, I think we all know that our environment shapes us. But this story really just stuck out for me because it's such an unexpected like link between sulfur and volcanoes and bird feathers. (laughs) It's like, right. That's wild. Pretty cool. That definitely went places I I
2: wasn't expecting
1: yeah and i will say yeah. too like I, I i i'm not going into it this week but like basically they found this in other animals too it's not just in birds um the the, huh. the sulfur they think can affect uh the the oh. color the melanin that you know mammals make and, and whatnot too for their fur hmm. so uh that's it's a cool connection kind of across the board wow. uh that's what i wanted to talk about i think it's really cool like sulfur cool. being detoxified into darker feathers uh, my main source this week was uh, an article about this uh, that was in Science News.
0: Cool. Well, that was not thanks. the topic about bird pigmentation that I wrote down. So yeah, I didn't think that's where it was going to go, right? <laughs> okay. Very
1: cool.
2: Yeah, I thought you were yeah, going to well, be that's talking about blue, which I've nope. talked about before. That's <laughs> wild.
1: I mean, that's what we got this week. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
1: Bye. Bye -bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.